Today's episode is brought to you by Gourmet Quilter. Because quilting is delicious. Gourmet Quilter has been bringing original design quilt patterns to the quilt world over the last 20 years, as well as many quilting tips and technique video tutorials via Gourmet Quilter on YouTube. Online projects are a specialty, such as Block of the Day, What's in the Box Mystery Quilts, sew-alongs, as well as many other delicious items. So go to GourmetQuilter.com to learn more and use the code CIA20 to receive 20% off on the Gourmet Quilter's book, That Town and Country Quilt, through February 29th, 2020. Thank you so much, Gourmet Quilter. And now, here's the show. Welcome to episode 161 of the Craft Industry Alliance podcast. I'm Abby Glassenberg. Craft Industry Alliance is a community for craft professionals where you can strengthen your creative business, stay up to date on industry news, and build connections within our supportive trade association. Check it out at craftindustryalliance.org. Today on the show, we're talking about collaborations with my guest, Angela Smith and Liz Gibson. Angela founded Pearl and Loop in 2012 after realizing her ladder was against the wrong wall in her sales career, and she was determined to find a calling that brought joy and creativity to the world. While she enjoyed needlecraft, she was more focused on the idea of creating a business from them rather than actually doing them. Since she focused on operations and process in graduate school, the world of manufacturing always had a special attraction. Pearl and Loop was originally a fiber-related e-commerce site. Upon discovering the world of laser cutters in 2014, Pearl and Loop moved into the business of creating portable weaving looms and accessories. Angela's goal is to create fun, cute, and simple weaving products to help makers use up their yarn and thread stash. When her mind is overactive with creativity, usually in the middle of the night, she reads mystery novels and she averages about one per week. Angela Smith, welcome. Thank you, Abby. I'm so excited to be here. I'm excited to talk with you as well. And Liz Gibson has an educational background in community development, wool science, and adult education, and a lifetime of exuberance for introducing beginners to the art and craft of weaving. She hosts a community-funded online weaving school for rigid heddle weavers and a resource-rich website. She's written many books about rigid heddle weaving, both self-published and for established publishers. Liz has worked for herself for the past eight years, and before that, worked in the yarn trade in publishing and manufacturing. Having spent nearly 20 years in the yarn industry and more than 30 as a weaver, she really enjoys collaborating with yarn makers, tool suppliers, and fellow makers to create unique learning experiences. Liz Gibson, welcome. I'm so glad to be here. Thanks. Yeah. So I'm really excited to talk with you. And we're going to spend the bulk of our time talking about the ways in which both of you work together in collaboration. But before we do that, I think it would be useful to hear about each of your businesses, how they came about, how they grew and developed over time. And um, and that way we'll have kind of a good understanding of where each of you are and how you came together. So Angela, we will start with you. Take us back to your time. I know you were 
selling real estate um, and explain how you kind of came to manufacturing weaving looms. Well, um, I was uh, I was a realtor in Houston and um, and I was really I was enjoying a really successful sales career. And frankly, I thought that I would be this doddering old 90 year old lady wearing St. John knit suits, you know, and showing high rise properties. And for my whole life, I thought I would do that. And I really thought I loved that. And um, and then I was during some stressful times in the business, I might um, knit washcloths and I was going down to my little local yarn shop. We had this adorable shop um, in central Houston uh, and I would sit and knit with these ladies and I just did washcloths. That's it. And I would come home from um, the the knitting experience and I'd be telling my husband, well, gee, that yarn's not moving or gee, this customer is complaining about this. And I think they could do something um, you know, else with, with how they're handling that. And I would always talk about that yarn shop, but more about the business versus the actual knitting. And at the, right around that same time, um, I had unexpectedly won um, a top producer award for that quarter. And that was something that at the, the company I worked for was like a great accomplishment. But I was so busy earning that, that when I found out I won, I was kind of like, huh? What? Like, why don't I feel better? Why am I not excited? Why am I not willing to work this hard for the next three quarters so that I can maintain that top producer status for the entire year? And that's when I realized, you know, my ladder was against the wrong wall. And I did not create that phrase. I heard it from somebody else. And um, I uh, just it kind of made me sad and thinking, I don't think I want to do real estate. Now that I've achieved this kind of very close to achieving the final goal, this was just not doing it for me. And my husband has said, well, you keep talking about this yarn shop. So why don't you ask if she'd be willing to sell to you? And, um, and so I did and she was not. And (laughs) I uh, then created a plan to open up my own yarn shop. And uh, then you had a down payment ready and, and was going to, you know, just leave real estate and go do something completely different. And when I met with bankers, um, I'm sure all of you could imagine the the reaction uh, I got from uh, dealing with some of these bankers. And it was really disheartening. And, um, and then I realized, wait a minute, I, I don't have to let this, this banker um, who knows nothing about this industry, uh, kill my dreams, I can just do something different. I'll do an online shop. I'll take my down payment and use it and create an online shop. And I did. And um, and I was selling yarn online. And I realized I didn't really love selling yarn very much. So I um, was branching out to more like kits and things like that. And uh, Right. So you're selling line, yarn online. And then did you find some looms that – or how did you get into like weaving with yarn? Okay. So I was um, – I had all this yarn and I just, I liked cuteness and I was at a uh, fiber show and I found someone was making these um, traditional wood making portable weaving looms and they started selling some to me and it was great, but because I didn't have any control over the production uh, or the process and they were made by traditional woodworking method, there was, they were high cost and I couldn't really, um, 
I couldn't obviously could not sell them wholesale. And I was putting together these little kits, but shops were asking me, could you do this for me? And I, and I couldn't. And I, you know, that was just like the answer there. It was just no. And then around this, um, a little while later, I moved into a studio space in Houston and down the hall was a laser cutting studio and they offered a class on laser cutting basics. And I, so I took it, it was like $25 class. What do I have to lose? And all of a sudden I realized I can redesign this loom and produce it for a fraction of what I'm paying for. Right. Using this, using the laser cutter. And, um, when you went to take the class, was that your intention or you, were you just curious about what is laser cutting? I was curious. I actually was very um, dismissive about it, like laser cutting. Yeah, whatever. You know, I I didn't know anything about it. And I want to take a step back. Um, When I had gotten these looms that were that were made for me, they came with four sentences as the instructions. Oh wow! That was (laughs) as a as a person who's a novice, very 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 novice weaver. I would have been very overwhelmed by that. Yeah. Right. And someone uh, had taught me how to, you know, what the words meant and how to do it. And then I had created my own instructions that went with this loom. Mm. And then I started sanding the wood and I started packaging it where I am like, we need a cotton bag and we need this and we need that and developed these kits that, um, which I thought my merchandising and the other things I was doing is really what added the value. Right. But I, have a way of making the loom. I never thought of it. It just never occurred to me to make a loom. And when I took the laser cutting class, it was like a light bulb went off in my head. And I realized I can completely redesign. Uh, so I didn't want to take that person's concept. Um, but then I could go into a wholesale business. Right, right. And so, um, so what was the first loom that you made? I made the stash blaster and it was just a, it was just a, it was kind of a a copy of the spacing of the other loom and a little bit of the size, uh, the same size. Uh, And that was, I'm embarrassed to say, that was a time when I didn't know anything about weaving and I just knew there were slots and we wrapped the yarn around it and it never occurred to me to think of it in any other way. Like I didn't real, I didn't, I never knew there was um, spacing like ends per inch or set. So you, I, you really didn't come in with like extensive weaving knowledge. You had this other loom that you were carrying. You looked at it, modeled the new one off of it, but without sort of a really in-depth understanding of all of the, the sort of available options when creating a loom and what uh, real weavers might need and what it could actually do and, and, and all of that. Exactly. I, I had no idea. Uh, to me, this was just something like a crafty thing that, you know, kids might do. I kept thinking back to the potholder loom. Yeah. And I didn't realize there was a whole world of weaving. Right. I had no clue. Right. Which maybe um, was actually a good thing because, you know, sometimes when you do understand all of the complexity and all of the competitors and all of that's out there. It just feels like there's no space for you and, and you are you don't know enough to do it. And so sometimes being ignorant is, is actually what allows you to, to sort of have the boldness to step in. So, 
Absolutely. I am, I am actually very grateful that I didn't know any of those things because I would have probably talked myself out of it. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's probably true. Okay. And so, um, did you outsource the cutting at first? No. Um, I rented time. It was a, it was a membership to a studio and you could buy a membership that was worth like two hours a week. And so I bought seven memberships. <laughs> so I had 14 hours a week of access on this laser machine and I went and did it, did all the cutting myself. And then, um, and I was doing the gluing and then eventually I hired someone, Hector, uh, some listeners out there might have heard they follow us on Instagram have known, um, I've mentioned Hector before and he's, it was just a phenomenal gluer and he handled the gluing for me. And then eventually, um, I had a staff person, um, Missy, uh, she was an artist in the same building and she also had taken laser cutting basics and I hired her to watch the laser. Got it. Someone watched the laser. So I couldn't always be down there. I needed to be back in my studio down the hall filling orders, but Missy would use the laser time that I bought and she would go, um, you know, cut looms on the laser for me. Right. Okay. All right. And eventually you did buy a laser cutter, but I think I, the last time you and I touched base, it sounded like you had decided that you didn't actually need one. Correct. I made a complete life change um, back in uh, July of 2018. I moved to Tulsa, Oklahoma with my husband. He had gotten a phenomenal career opportunity up here, and it was something that I would I pushed him to do and I thought it was just great for him. And I moved up here and I ran Pearl and Loop from afar. By that time we had our own laser machine. We had a like thousand square foot studio space. We did all production in Houston. That was, that was okay. Um, until it just no longer really worked for me. It was, it was a lot of work trying to manage everything without being there. I bet. That sounds really hard. So what yeah. what did you end up doing or sort of how is it operating now? So I uh, now I, I outsource the laser cutting to a company in California and I send them uh, the files and they they cut the products. It comes back on a sheet of wood and then we peel the tape off, inspect it. We do the gluing, the sanding, um, all the quality control here in Tulsa. And then also in Tulsa, we have something fabulous called Fab Lab. And I have a membership to Fab Lab. So I can go over to Fab Lab and um, that gets me, you know, a certain number of hours per month. And then there's also a laser that's first come, first serve. So I can go over there and maybe cut out a prototype. I can customize yarn worker products. I can um, do some customization, you know, that that's for established customers and uh, just, you know, kind of fill in any holes in our inventory at, at Fab Lab. Right. Okay. I see. All right. Great. So I feel like that pretty much brings people up to date and gives them kind of a background of of what you do. And you've got lots of other different looms now and, and weaving accessories that you produce um, in addition to that first loom that we talked about. So, um, and you do some white labeling as you, as you said. So, um, so I think that's great. And I'd love now to turn to, to you, Liz, and hear a little bit about your business. You've been 
um, in the crafts industry, in the weaving industry for a really long time. Um, it sounds like you, you know, sort of first were hired by Interweave in 2001. So that's coming on 19 years now. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I guess how did, um, how did you get that first job at Interweave? Were you um, weaving as a hobby and applied or how did that happen? Well, it's, it's one of those, um, it's, not what you know it's who you know which sounds it's networking into a job really and I I lived in um, Loveland I had landed in that community I was working in a nonprofit. I had this background in wool science I thought of myself as more of a community developer um, and was a weaver and had been a weaver just personally but I had met a really good friend in in at Colorado State University, and we were both in the fiber arts program. I was minoring, and she was getting her master's, Amy Clark Moore, and she had gotten this job at Interweave, which neither of us were really aware that this massive presence was in our own backyard. <laughs> um, and so she became editor of Spinoff and let me know this this job was available. And I had already volunteered for some conferences at that point, still kind of being ignorant of this publishing platform. Um, and so I I'd, I'd volunteered for the Natural Dye Conference and I had met Marilyn Murphy, who was uh, started with event management and eventually became the president of the company. So I'd had these relationships. So when I applied for the job, I already had some familiarity with the players. So I started as an assistant editor on Spinoff part-time mostly because of my sort of sheep background, but also project management skills. And um, I also had an odd eclectic piece of media skills that became handy as, you know, I was there, I think I arrived a few months after they got email for the first time. You know, it was, yeah. a, it was a traditional platform dealing with changing technology. So... Um, I eventually became managing editor of Handwoven and worked on Knitting Daily TV and did, you know, worked in that transition, you know, worked to create one of their first digital products, which was a PDF. It was so exciting. And, and um, you know, really, really was sort of had a seat at the table watching that change. That yeah, whole it was change a, a time of media upheaval and you came in yeah. right when it was about to happen. <laughs> It was nuts, but it, it was also, you know, what's old is new again, because the principles are the same. Community development is the same, whether you're working, um, you know, with a, a sheep farm, working on value-added products, whether you are uh, working in a media company, trying to develop specific content, or whether you're a blogger who's, you know, talking about something they're excited about, those fundamentals of of community development and instructional design and all apply, no matter yeah. what your technology you're using. Absolutely. I want to take a minute now to talk with our sponsor, Susan Clare of Gourmet Quilter. Um, so I'm Susan Clare, Susan Clare Mayfield is my full name and my business is Gourmet Quilter because quilting is delicious. Oh, I love that. Okay, so tell me a little bit about Gourmet Quilter. What is it that you do? Um, well, Gourmet Quilter works as, a, I guess it's my online presence mostly, but I design quilt patterns and write the patterns as well. 
for a variety of different quilt styles. I do a lot of applique, I do a lot of piecing, I do mystery quilts, I do all sorts of different things like that. I do a lot of online type projects such as the block of the day. I run an online mystery project, sew-alongs. I also do a lot of video tutorials as Gourmet Quilter, which is, go out through my channel on YouTube, which are tips and techniques for quilters so that they can pick up little hints and ideas here and there. Lovely. And where are you based? I'm based in New Zealand in a wonderful country spot with the sun shining, of course, as it does in New Zealand. Love it. And what is your favorite color to use in quilts? Well, I have so many favorite colors. I tend to use a lot of green, I think, but I really get a little bit carried away because just color is so amazing. Agreed. Um, and are your patterns mostly for beginners or for more advanced quilters, or is it a mix? It's a mix. I like to do a whole variety of different things. Uh, some of the patterns are aimed at even younger people. I've done some programs for children to learn from. Um, some of them are a little bit more involved, but nothing's terribly uh, hard. Sometimes there's just a lot of it. I have done some fabric designs as well. I've uh, written a book from one of my patterns, which is called That Town and Country Court. That was one of my block of the day patterns. And this year in 2020, I'm running a, a whole new series of fun, uh, tasty treats, I think we're calling them, for people to do that run for 20 days each. They're going to be $20 each. It's 2020. Everything's 2020. So that's going to be a fun year coming up. And remind us where we can find you so we can follow along. Well, you can find me on the web at gourmetquilter.com. Well, Susan Claire, thank you so much. I think this is really exciting. Thank you so much, Susan Claire of Gourmet Quilter. And now back to my conversation with Angela and Liz. And so, um, so as you your interweave career sort of um, wrapped up, what did you do next? Um, I. I went to Shack Spindle Company. So they were in Boulder um, and uh, Jane, who was the creative director, married to Barry Schacht, had been an editor of Handwoven Magazine in the past, worked with them on a lot of different projects. And I had kind of done everything there was for me to do. I just really was not editor material. That was not my wheelhouse. And that was sort of the natural place to go. Um, and so I went to manufacturing it was in the region I really didn't want to leave weaving but I needed to do something else and they were really kind to give me a landing spot they hired me as the sales and marketing director and um, I, I really rounded out my perspective in terms of you know the tool maker side of things and also the supply chain in terms of the shop community and um, and it was awesome, but it was an hour commute each way. Yeah, it was it was not sustainable for my back or, um, and it's also a manufacturing environment. So we worked, you know, four tens and a half day. So it, it structurally didn't work for me. So I I broke out on my own at that point to see what I could do. All right, and then you started your website. I'm assuming um, at at some point here called Yarn Worker to um, to sort of teach people online how to get started with weaving, how to improve? Yeah, that was serendipity. It's, I, I started Yarn Worker in 2013, so I, I had video production skills. So when I went freelance, I already had some relationships with folks who needed 
the YouTube video, needed the story video, needed. So I, I did that for a while. I was an early contractor with Craftsy during their startup phase. So I, I think I was like number 69 or something. So I worked with them to develop the some spinning and weaving content. Um, and during that time, I had always taught rigid huddle weaving as a floor loom weaver I had come to the rigid huddle loom because it's more of a populist loom it was more of a way for people to get started it was portable it was definitely a modern lifestyle loom and um, so I started yarn workers just while I was doing all this other stuff as a place for me to have a home so I'd already written a book for interweave done some video workshops I just needed a space yeah I'd been blog you know blogging on other blogger and other platforms. So I, I started this website and then uh, moving, similar to Angela, my my spouse had a position at New Mexico Tech. Um, so we ended up moving to New Mexico and I taught, I just started teaching and was on the road a lot and lost half my samples in a shipping contain. You know, oh. there was a, a derailment and half the samples went. It was the first time I'd ever ship them ever (laughs) and so uh but it would turn out to be a really great thing because on on just a whim I said hey do you want to weave these things with me and it was this tremendous response alongs are such a great community builder and we rewove all my samples people were sending me samples of you know patterns I had had out there but didn't have the actual thing anymore um so it was just a great moment and from that I birthed the Yarnworker School, which was a full-on online school platform where people, what I, I found is we were weaving aspirational weaves, these, you know, weaves that seem really challenging or um, big and breaking them down, but I could see folks still needed this sort of foundational know-how. So I created a curriculum that let them create this base of skills for any craft you know we have these certain things to know and then we continue to do these aspirational weaves that are free and open and it's supported by an amazing patreon community and um you know it just you you uh you find a little vein or you get some traction and you just keep going (laughs) yeah totally and um what are you using to host the class so I use Thinkific. So I'm using their platform as the, it's, you know, whiteboarded to my branding, but I use the Thinkific platform, which is very much a, you know, sign up, here's the classes, all, like teachable, like so many of these platforms yeah. have. Yeah. So that's where I host the school itself where you take the classes. Right. It's not a membership site in the sense that this started very much as a, um, a Patreon experience. So it is... You know, I didn't launch a full-on membership site. It's like, hey, I'm doing these classes if you want to support me, and I have this website kind of thing. <laughs> right. Okay. And so to take the classes, you need to become a patron? No, not necessarily. It, they're separate. So okay. the, the Patreon community is just fully there because they like what I'm doing. So the Weavalongs are free when they're active. And so to keep them open and going – that's what the Patreons are supporting. And then the classes, you get discounts if you're a patron or you can just go buy a class at the school. I see. Okay. And then you had an online shop or you have an online shop where you sell, it looks like some eBooks and other materials. Yeah. 
and I started, this is, it's a good sort of where I found um, Angela. And I, I loved what you said about like, it's good to not know things when you dive in. Having been in this industry a long time, you know, people, both people who know everything think no one should come in unless they are experts. Right. <laughs> you know, yeah, I know they, that. Yes. No space for them. And I just think enthusiasm and freshness is what keeps us fresh. And um, so I had a, sh I have a shop and I was trying to figure out, I didn't really want to be a yarn seller. And I have collaborated with other people who I've worked with for a long time who would make cotton clouds would make kits for the weave alongs. I didn't really want to sell the yarn. I just wanted it to be easy for people to take the class or do whatever it is they needed to do. And I had some kits and I, I sold my own books. Um, so I self-published two physical guides and, um, you know, it was just sort of messing around and, and eventually sold looms from Angela, which sort of predates our, um, well, we, we're getting into the collaboration. Yeah. Part. So let's, well, let's get into it now. So be, did you, had you met Angela at that time when you started selling Pearl and Loop looms on your site or was it just like you liked them and started ordering them wholesale? Well, it was, um, I have looked at all collaborations as I have a problem or there's a problem that needs to be solved. And I met Angela at TNNA, so good old networking at a trade show. And I was actually writing my second book for Interweave. And I approached her purely as a personal need. Um, you know, I was writing this book and I had a really aggressive deadline um, and I needed to figure out how to fail faster. And one of the things I had always wanted and never could get were little swatching looms in the sets, the spacing of the looms that I use. So it was really common to find them in sets of eight, which I do use, sets of four, sets of six, but you couldn't find them in sets of 10 and 12. And there are ways you could adapt those other looms to get that set. But it's the, the fact I needed to be able to whip up a swatch, to be able to compare sets, to be able to do colors. You know, it's a designer tool that I needed. And so I approached her, you know, we about, you know, could, could you make something like this? Could we somehow get this together? Because I, I have this need. I hadn't really thought it through as a, commercial product, except I knew if I had this problem, chances are other people have the problem as well. Right, right, um, totally. So so you approached her for this tool for personal use. And <laughs> um, uh, and Angela, what was your sort of initial feeling? <laughs> I love this story. <laughs> Hell, expletive, 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 no. <laughs> <laughs> and and I mean, I, I've actually had that exact reaction when people reach out to me for collaborations uh, where I'm just like, um, no, uh, I don't do that. Um, so, to, so explain what, what was, you know, leading, leading you to say no immediately. I got this email from Liz and it was also at the time when I was really bumping up against the capacity of what I was renting time for at that laser studio. Um, the owner of that laser studio her business had changed and she really was finding working with members and selling memberships like I had 
to be something that was stopping her from growing her business in the direction she wanted to go. So I knew I wouldn't have any access to any more laser time. I knew that I was already stretched. So just the idea of something new and in the amount of time it takes just to prototype it on a laser, it, I just didn't see how I had the capabilities. And so that was why I just was say, I, I was like, you know, expletive, expletive, no. And my husband was with me and he had always said, you know, having too much business is a great problem to have. And I could never see it that way because I felt like I was drowning. And, you know, the, the orders with in, in line in terms of what my production abilities were, my staffing. And so he said, don't you respond to her in email. You tell her you want to talk to her on the phone. So I did. And she called me. And I still remember this conversation. I was sitting out in my car outside the studio. It was, a, it was in August. It was hot. Um, but my car was air conditioned. And um I think we had no air conditioning in the studio. Something had happened that day, which is why I was in my car and talking to her and Liz was telling me about her problem. And all of a sudden within like minutes, I saw the solution in my head and realized that I could draw it out and hire somebody to create the uh, illustrator uh, file and solve that problem. I think Liz, didn't we have like a prototype, something that we started with within two weeks? Yeah, it was really fast. Okay, great. And so, so you ended up doing it instead, in spite of yourself, um, came up with this prototype um, that was going to solve the problem, but still it wasn't a commercial product. Did you just send it to Liz and say, here you go, I made it for you? No, um, I knew being new in this kind of business, I wasn't at a point where I'd be like had a plan for charging someone to do something like this and I also felt like if I was solving it why would I just sell my I you know she had the problem I had the idea you know I had the like the design in my head and so I thought well whether she likes it or not I'll invest the time in it because I think it's something I could sell and right. because I was in control of my production whether I made 10 Swatchmaker 3-in-1s or 10,000 didn't matter it didn't change anything so I was willing to just, I was willing to just go along because I'm like, I'm going to learn something out of this and maybe I'll sell 20 of them to recoup my costs. And, you know, if Liz doesn't like it and I'll just, you know, kind of move on. And that was the plan, you know, the plan, like I'll solve her problem, but you know, I'll sell them and see what happens, put them on a website. Little did I know what was going to come up. Right. Okay. And so this is when I feel like um, co-marketing kind of comes into play. Um, and when you pair up with somebody um, who's got a devoted audience but doesn't have sort of the, the other side of the business, the side that you can provide, um, and you come together, you know, you both win. So, um, so the product was – tell us the name of the product that you did develop for this. It's the Swatchmaker 3-in-1. Okay. And so you had the Swatchmaker 3-in-1. You were like, yeah, I'll just throw it up on the site and see what happens. And so what did happen? What happened next? Liz, I guess you could pick up the story here. It's it's important on, on a, a lot of levels because we had the 3-in-1, and then we also worked on expanding a product she already had, which was that Stash Blaster to offer it in different sets. So we had these sort of two solutions to your swatching problems. And um, 
I knew I would love it. So other people would like it. So I, I did this promotion, you know, we talked about sort of the business arrangement and how would this work? And I wrote instructions and, you know, we, we put our heads together doing what each of us do best. And we just also had a very good rapport. I was absolutely willing to trust her in what she does best. And she was absolutely willing to, you know, trust me in what I do best. And, um, I think an important part of it is I, I did what I said I was going to do when I said I was going to do it, and I, which was put out a, a post and put it out and sort of promote it to my folks. And a lot of folks, and Angela tells the story better, but I think it's a really important point because I've worked in the industry a long time, and a lot of people approach people on collaborations get something for it and fail to follow through. Yeah, and no, that's totally they, true. And you, even if it doesn't work out, you know, even if you, you, you know, you do your part and maybe it doesn't work out as you thought it would, um, you know, my goal was to just solve Weaver's problems. We didn't really have a high expectations about what the results would be. But no matter what, if somebody provides me something, I'll get back to them and say, you know, it was a swatching skein. It didn't work in the sample or this didn't happen or I couldn't make this. Because if Angela gives me something, if she gives me a $50 loom, people focus on the fact that, well, that only cost her, you know, I mean, of course, this was a prototype. That's a whole nother thing. That only cost her, you know, 50 cents. Of course, it cost her a lot more than that. So it's no big deal for her to give it to me. But that's a $50 sale she wouldn't get if she hadn't given me this product. So it's a huge in investment in terms of that relationship back and forth. It's not, product is not free from a wholesaler. Yeah, um, that's a great point. And, um, and so if somebody is, you know, going into a relationship with you, it might not be a contractual relationship, but it is a relationship. And so you, you know, you should honor what you committed to, um, for sure. Just, and just, you know, your reputation's out there too. You know, that's important as well. So Angela, what happened as far as like sales were concerned when Liz did make this post? Well, I'm going to take a step back a little bit and go back into the trust factor. Um, Liz and I had worked on something for TNNA. Uh, Liz had negotiated, was negotiating on behalf of TNNA, and um, we were doing some, we were producing something for weaving kits. And I had found that dealing with Liz, she was very straightforward, didn't mess around, didn't play games, and she did what she said she was going to do. She said she'd get back to me in a couple of days with a response. She did. So in my brain, she had already met all the criteria of someone that I was willing to listen to. And I, I, I have to say, I don't meet, I don't encounter a lot of people who do what they say they're going to do when they say they're going to do it. I know. Sad, but yeah. true. And it's, it's not just the, it's not the industry. It's, it's, it's in a lot of things. I have to say also that I can't tell you the number of times people have said, Oh, can I have a sample? I want to write about this in my blog or, or my podcast, and I never knew what that blog was or that podcast was. So those promises were like, yeah, 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 from my perspective. And I had already decided I'm going to just take this where it goes, whether Liz 
I didn't know what yarn worker was. I didn't know what any of that was. I just knew that I trusted Liz. And then I thought, well, it's a new idea, new product. And, and I, I will find a way to recoup my costs one way or another. And so when Liz had said, hey, I need a link to your to this item in your shop, I was kind of like, what? You know, I, I can't produce anything until the end of January because I there was a lot of stuff going on. And uh, I was contemplating a move and the, the I was getting restricted on my laser access and there were all these things. And then I thought, oh, yeah, but how many times do people actually really, you know, do that? And so I went online, I created the link and sent it to Liz. Like, I think it was like mid-December. I totally forgot about it. <laughs> forgot about it. And um, just... Yeah, I had no idea what to expect because I didn't know. I didn't Google Liz. I didn't do a lot of research. I, like I said, I just trusted her and I just moved with that. And um, it was New Year's Day because she said she sent her newsletter out on the first of every month. And my husband and I were sitting at someplace having coffee, and he said, "Why is your phone all lighting up? And why is it hot?" <laughs> And I turned it over and I saw like 150 sales and it was for a price point that was way higher than what my other products sold for. And I shouted, you know, here over at Central Market in Houston and I shouted, I've been hacked. I've been hacked. <laughs> Someone, someone's bought all this stuff from me. I've been hacked. And then it dawned on me, oh, when you're hacked, they're not giving you money. <laughs> That's not how it works. <laughs> and and I did put on the listing, you know, these would not start shipping until like after like January 20th or something like that. And the orders just kept coming in. At the same time, the the relationship with the rental laser studio kind of went away because this, the, the owner was like, I'm going in this direction with my business. You, you know, you, you can't rent time anymore. And here I had all these orders and we were restricted physically because to have a laser machine, you had to have a, a, a room with a ceiling and you had to have certain electrical requirements, um, for a standalone filtration system, or you had to have physical requirements to be able to blow all those fumes out into the air. And my studio that I was renting for this little small amount, this little small space had an open ceiling and none of those other things. And my landlord was trying to work with me, but things just weren't happening. And then finally it was like January 2nd or 3rd and I'm talking to my landlord and they're like, well, this other space popped up and it was four times larger than what I had. And I simultaneously called a bank. Uh, it was a, a business day and I was driving back from a, a trip with my husband in the hill country and I was on the phone with the banker and then I called the laser company. And within like three days, I had signed a lease, uh, met with the laser company to do a demo on the laser and placed an order and got approved for a business loan. And literally at this point, it was a CYF and LOF, and that's cross your fingers and take that leap of faith. But this was all going to work out. Yeah, yeah, totally. And I think that that really speaks to your willingness to take on risk. And, you know, a lot of people who are starting a craft-based business, that's really scary. It's scary to get a bank loan. It's scary to have debt. 
Um, it's scary to invest in a studio space that's a lot larger and, and the rent's going to be more expensive. Um, but at the same time, had you not done it, you wouldn't have been able to expand and to potentially, you know, have the sustainable, big, bigger business that you, you have now. So um, I just, I think that there's a lot to be learned there about the willingness to, to invest and to invest in yourself. So that's, yeah, that's great. Okay. All right. So you really changed your business in response to that. And Liz, I want to talk a little bit about the strategy you used then for getting the word out, which um, is my favorite strategy, which is email marketing. So I know you send out um, a newsletter and I get your newsletter, which I love. And, um, and so I, I guess if you, can you say like, you know, around how large your list was at that time and, and the, the effectiveness of, of reaching people in that way? Yeah, I've always been a fan of small, powerful lists. So uh, 5,000, I think I was at that time. Um, So I call my list constantly, constantly to just keep it as folks who are really interested in this specific thing, rigid heddle weaving. It's not weaving. It's not, you know, it's not general. It's specific. Um, And it is a terrible name for a loom that's really wonderful. Everybody trips up on it. I know. I can't say it. It's, it's terrible. And I think, um, it, and then I use all the, I, I manage, I have a, a Facebook page. Um, I have an Instagram feed. Um, so I use those and then a Facebook group, which is just for at that time, I think it wasn't patron only. It was the lemonade crew. So it was folks who were doing those early weave alongs. Um, and I was still writing the book. So it was a, a pretty uh, traditional focused kind of uh, get the word out thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was just, it also speaks to the fact that um, when someone's been around for a long time and you see a hole, right, you see something that people would like, it speaks to just solving that problem, not just the size of the list or the impact of the influencer, if you will, or who's saying the message. Um, And I loved working with Angela because to her, and this is the way I've seen a lot of great tool businesses work. You know, I am someone who is enthusiastic about my subject matter and Angela is, is, uh, likes it, but is enthusiastic about making efficient systems and processes. That's her craft. And so I think in that sense, teaming up um, allowed us to, to take advantage of, of both of those parts. And I also have a great deal of respect for both the manufacturing process and what it takes to sell physical objects. Like so much of my business has been built around selling knowledge, not things. Um, so uh, I, I don't know that, you yeah. know, we were getting it. Marketing. So it was a really simple, I mean, it wasn't a whole lot of work on my part in the sense it was writing the instructions and then just getting the, the word out in a really simple way. Yeah, but yeah. it met it met people's needs, it solved their problem, and you had a devoted following. So that was very helpful. And so um, I wanted to talk about two things. The first of the, the first one is revenue share. Um, because in, you know, a collaboration like this, you you're you're sort of both a big part of this um, product and its success, clearly. And so um, how did you work that out and what systems do you use to, to, you know, on a monthly basis, a quarterly basis to reconcile everything? 
Well, I'll take the first part of it in that when we went into actually selling product, we did write up a, a small collaborative agreement, just a simple one page kind of a thing. And I got a token amount for um, the specific loom because my thinking was I wanted to write this guide and I was going to sell them on my website as well. So I got my problem solved. Um, we had, you know, we did the affiliate disclosure kind of stuff. Um, and, and I think that was really important to have it in writing for both of us, but it also wasn't, we didn't belabor that point a lot. Um, as, a I have a, for me personally, um, affiliate income is is always a little challenging because I'm not as focused on the sale as I am. The more successful my students are, the more successful my business is. So I'm always focused on ways that they can be better. And that just means they hang out in my space more. And I was physically selling things in my shop, and this is a little bit down the line, but it was Angela who saw my problem, which was I kept ordering products. Like then I was turning into this retailer because I was just like turning around and being like, I need more, I need more, I need more. And she had the thought, well, I, I stock them. Why am I sending them to you? Then sending them, and then you're sending them out. Can't we create a yarn worker collection on the Pearl and Loop platform? And we'll change the margins a bit, and then you just send them to me, and I'll fulfill the orders. And that that was so awesome. <laughs> it just made things so much easier all the way around. Right. So in your, Liz, in your online shop right now, your, your own products, your own guides and things like that, say add to cart. And then the Pearl and Loop collection, a yarn worker for Pearl and Loop collection, it says, you know, buy at Pearl and Loop. So that's what the buy button says. And when you click it, it goes directly to that product listing, but on Angela's website. Correct. Right. Right. Okay. And is the revenue share 50-50? No. It's not. Okay. So there's, there's a, there's, it's not a hundred, it's not a hundred percent of an equal revenue share. Would you, are you comfortable saying what it is? Yeah. Well, I am. Angela, are you? (laughs) I am. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, uh, wait a minute. It's 30, 60, 20. Now I can't even remember. 20. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but yeah, 20%. So, um, but what that means to me is before, of course, I was, I was buying the product. So I had to come up with all the money up front. Right. And, and I would get it for wholesale and then I would sell it, which also meant I had to take the time. So, and Angela had this similar experience with distribution. By the time I go through all of that, my, my profit line was the same, you know, 20% was, it was still, what I would be bringing home at the end of the day to support the business. Right. So it made complete sense and it, it was more efficient on Angela's um, part as well. So I think, um, you know, ha- having worked in the trade for a long time, people get really, uh, well, some people do, not, not all people see the value. They get really caught up on those percentages, but you know, why should you get more if I'm doing X, you're doing Y, Z? But I think you have to take everything to account. We don't charge enough for our time. We don't um, think enough about our cash flow and how it's affected by putting it into product. We don't think about 
the boxes we're not having to spend money on and the label and the printing and, and all of those aspects. Plus I'm really happy to, uh, share in that sense in that, um, you know, our customers see each other in this, uh, collaborative spirit itself. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. And so do you kind of reconcile at the end of the month or at the end of the quarter? Quarterly. Quarter. Yeah. And okay. Abby, I'd like to speak a little bit about that. Um, the revenue share too. Um, I, like I said, Liz and I have a, have an agreement that we feel works, works really well for us. And there's a trust aspect, you know, at the, every quarter I, um, even like on my website, her products that are yarn worker specific have their own SKU that, for example, begins with YW. So even though I might sell Swatchmaker somewhere else on my website or, you know, through a, to a whole, to a retailer, um, that's a different revenue share than when someone is specifically going to the yarn worker collection because they want to buy from Liz. Right. And so even though it's the same product, she'll have her, she has her own SKUs because I try to respect that, that the goal is to respect that customer who, who's there to support Liz. And I'm grateful for the um, people coming to the website uh, and want to make it very easy for them to, to buy the product. And, and when they buy it, you know, through the Yarnworker collection, a higher percentage does go to Liz. Um, one of the things that I found when I was been at trade shows and I never really talked to Liz about this, um, was people would come up to talk to Liz when I was there. They would say things like, oh, I hope you're getting a lot of money from this. You know, you, you've earned that, Liz. And Liz always handles it just like she, she did now. It's a, she, she always responded really great. But I always found myself getting a little prickly with those people's comments because the things that people don't realize is, yes, Someone brings me the idea. In this case, Liz does the, helped me with the marketing. I, you know, I never would have reached that market without Liz. Uh, you know that that um, that advertising aspect. But I'm the one who pays the legal fees. Uh, I'm the one who buys the raw materials. Uh, I mean, Pearl and Loop is the one that has the space at the time. You know that housed all those materials, housed the laser. I Perlmutt paid for the insurance. Uh, Perlmutt pays for the product liability insurance. Uh, Perlmutt paid for the labor of people to glue the looms, finish the looms, package the looms, um, ship the looms. Perlmutt paid for all the printing of any you know instructions. Uh, Perlmutt assumes liability for everything. And that's a lot. And so there's sometimes with the manufacturers, people don't, they just look at that, that sale price and think, wow, you know, 50% should go to the person with the idea, but the idea, yes, but there's a huge, there's a lot of stuff that keeps you awake at night, makes you read mystery novels in the middle of the night. (laughs) Yeah. You know, I think this is a really true, it's really true and applies to many other facets of our industry. So for example, it applies to people who design fabric. Um, and often, you know, customers will make that same kind of comment, like you should get a larger share of um, the sale price for, you know, per yard because it's, it's really just pennies. 
Um, but if you think about the the risk that the, the an investment that the manufacturer is putting into that to getting that product, which is printed in Korea, you know, comes over on a boat, um, is cut and all the rest and distributed, it, it's extremely expensive. Um, and uh, and so and and for the the designer, you know, yes, that those those are ideas are what sell the product, but it's a very different level of investment. Um, and, and the same thing is, is true, actually, for publishing, you know, books with a traditional Absolutely. publisher, um, which we, you know, many of us have done. And, um, you know, the advance can be pretty small and uh, the royalties can fe- feel small. But at the same time, you didn't have to have that book printed in China um, and all, you know, there's just so much that goes into um, to getting those books distributed and um, and made. Well, and so, yeah. And I and just talking about the the value of an idea, um, which is such a loaded thing. I mean, there's so much around like originality and ideas. And for me in weaving, I have a such a respect for the history of our craft. And people think of originality as things that happened um, in the 19th and 20th century, you know, I mean, we, we, this idea of originality and craft is, you know, so much longer and larger than that. So you can have an idea that may solve a a particular modern problem, but, you know, what is it that Edison said? One moment of inspiration and, you know, 99% perspiration, you know, how you implement the idea is where it comes to market and who is doing the bulk of that work. Um, You know, the publishing model, I 100% to write a book for a publisher have to give up a year of my life and do nothing but think about that. And it, it, it is a hard thing to do. And so what I always say why it's it's hard what we do in this trade is that you have to have a strategy for how you're going to use your idea to make it better for you and it's not just going to come from the money you make from that book or that loom or that whatever you know your 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 business is bigger than a single idea and i can't implement all these ideas i could not do them without collaborators i know kind of what my customers need what my students are interested in how i can help facilitate their learning and i can't i i don't i i can't do it all effectively i'm a solopreneur you know i work with a few contractors but it's just me and i don't really want to be bigger than that so having collaborative partners and keeping in perspective and value really valuing what they do I think is what makes the partnerships work. Yes, absolutely. That's a good way to think about it, no matter what the collaboration. Um, so, so now, um, Angela, can you speak to just as we finish up this portion of the show? Can you speak to sort of how many um, collaborative products you and Liz have created now? And I don't know if you're comfortable saying, but like, what percentage of your total sales are through Yarnworker? You know, I don't really know what the total percentage is. Um, I should know that. <laughs> I've been really busy, but I would say maybe 10 to somewhere between 10 and 20%. And that varies from month to month, depending on you know, how big of a marketing push uh, Liz and I um, do. Some months it could be even well below the 10, um, but it just, it, 
that ebbs and flows based on what's kind of going on with our life. You know, sometimes I'll get an idea. Some of the things that are in the Yarnworker collection are, are my idea inspired by Liz, and I just create it and put it in there and said, hey, by the way, you've got a new product <laughs> <laughs> that, that's uh, being credited to you, you know, um, because I, I want to pay homage to the ideas that Liz gives me that I wouldn't have you know, some of the things that are in there, I wouldn't have had without her. Um, and I have to say that quarterly, when I do the hardest part about the quarterly or, or um, figuring out sales and, and the split is just like the sitting down and printing out the QuickBooks thing. And then, you know, the Shopify thing and, and adding it up and make sure you add it up correctly. But I have to say the my favorite check to write every quarter is to Liz. That's lovely. <laughs> and you have what, half a dozen products or is it is it a little more? We have um it's 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 growing. Um we've done some things like little pickup sticks. Um there's a set checker in there that um I had already created it was 85 percent 90 percent created when Liz came to us and said well, you know you should consider this and so um, we already were there, but what we do to make that uh, revenue share, you know, more fair is I start creating things that are just on the set checker for yarn worker. Got it. And it, in there, and so we have set checkers, but they'll, they'll they have a variety of sayings, you know, like huddles up or or the yarn worker logo, and you know, look for weave repeat in the future. Um, and then uh, you know, we all have um accessory kits but then you'll have it where you can break it apart and just get individual components so that's why i'm uh not answering the question exactly because it could probably be up to maybe 20 potentially 20 to 30 different SKUs. um but it's just uh selling different components of something like you know the for liz we have in yarn worker store the huddles up uh weaving accessory bundle and what's unique about that is it also includes the set checker that says huddles up. Got it. Okay. Our regular accessory bundle doesn't, but then you can buy those things individually as well. Got it. Okay. All right. Thank you for being willing to share your numbers and your breakdown and how, you know, kind of how the nuts and bolts of this work. I think that's really useful um, for people who are considering doing a collaboration to hear how a successful one has happened. And I really underlying all of it is mutual respect and trust and um, sticking to your commitments. And, and those, I think those themes definitely um, ring true with what you've built together. So um, I want to turn to your recommendations, if we could, because you both have some really good ones. And um, Angela, we're going to start with you. You wanted to recommend a magazine that I've actually never heard of. Is it pronounced Cole, K-O-E-L? That's how I pronounce it. Okay. So what, what I've actually, I, I, I'm an avid follower of magazine, craft magazines, but I haven't heard of this one. Oh my gosh, Abby, you could tip me over with a feather. Um, <laughs> it's, it is like, it is the craft version of uh, Architectural Digest. I mean, it's like a, it's like a, saw like a book, like a soft book. It comes out, I believe, quarterly, and um, Irene produces it. She was in um, the Netherlands, and then she's in Singapore now. I think she'd moved back and forth, and it is the most um, – it's a clean, bright, airy um, magazine that covers knitting, crochet, weaving, macrame, and it's just – it is laid out in such a visually – appealing man. I mean, I just can't say enough about it. 
um, that just, I just sit there and just look at it and wish, dang, I wish I wasn't so obsessed with manufacturing. I could do some of these things. <laughs> okay. I'm going to go check that out. That sounds fantastic. I think I'm going to put it on my birthday wish list um, to get a subscription. That sounds gorgeous. So I can't believe I haven't seen it before. Okay. Um, and Liz, you wanted to recommend a book called Raw Materials Working with Wool in the West. Yeah, it's um, it's been out for a while, but I finally got around to it to read it. And it's just, you know, I'm a sheep person. I'm committed to the wool industry and I thought she did such a fabulous job you know as someone who just saw a problem there aren't enough sheep shearers I'm gonna go out and start shearing sheep um and you know we all think we're gonna do that and she followed it through and then really carried us along on her journey and gave us that idea of the American fiber shed. She also worked in San Francisco in the high tech world and is an excellent researcher and writer. So she's really, there's, it's very resource rich. So it just personally, as someone who was already there, she got me to recommit to be there even more in terms of, you know, really looking at domestic wool manufacturing and um, that supply chain. Wonderful. Sounds like a great book. You guys have great recommendations. Um, okay, Angela, you wanted to recommend a slow cooker that you just recently got that browns the food. I can't believe this exists. I didn't know it existed. And I tried it out over on New Year's Day um, in my Houston house. Um, my niece was coming to visit, and I knew she wouldn't be up for going out for dinner after her flight arrived. So I decided to make chili. And I needed a slow cooker in that house because my slow cooker went to Tulsa. And my husband and I found this one, um, and I said, it browns. And so literally I put the meat in the the top, and I browned the meat. You just set the temperature, like whatever, let's say 300, 350 degrees, and you just brown it. And then when I'm ready to, like, add the other ingredients, I just move uh, – I just press the button and move it from dot browning into slow cooking. Oh, my gosh. That why do they not all do that? That is so brilliant because that's like the th- I, I I will not make a slow cooker recipe if you first have to brown things in a, on the stove because I'm like I, I don't want to make like dirty dishes that I you know what I mean at eight o'clock in the morning like I'm just not doing this. So yeah, you do it and because I've had I have the other one my my Tulsa house where you can brown it in the pan that you slow cook it in. You take the pan and, and oh. lay it on the stove, and that that's great. But it still requires a burner. Yeah, mine doesn't even do that. I have to use, like, another pan. So this is, like, a revolution. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. (laughs) I'm going to have to get the brand of slow cooker from you after this. Yeah. So maybe I'll link to it in the show notes because um, that sounds fantastic. Okay. Um, And, Liz, you wanted to recommend Country Music by Ken Burns and Hip Hop Evolution on Netflix. I know. So – I get my best insight. I'm a, I'm a live music enthusiast and we go see a lot of live music. And in tandem with that, I, I will often attend the business side of that. So I'll go to South by Southwest or the Americana Music Festival and go to their business portions. Um, I find if you look at another industry, and both of these are documentaries that highlight very different genres. In my area, it is very common for people to say, what music do you listen to? And they'll say, I listen to country and hip hop. And you think, well, those don't go together. But their evolutionary story and how 
one person becomes a performer and makes something although there might not be anything around them and then they suddenly become the producer and then they are the contracts they negotiate i just there's a lot of there there when we are we are looking at other things other creative industries that you suddenly solve a problem in your own industry and maybe yeah. i'm I'm the only, I'm, I mean, we all make these random connections, but I just so enjoyed both of those documentaries from a business perspective. Yeah, no, I I'm totally understand what you're saying. And I listen to a lot of podcasts and read a lot about journalism and the, that sort of side of things and, um, and definitely find things that are applicable to, you know, the way that um, I run my own business. And so I think there's a lot to be learned from looking outside and not just sort of keeping your head completely buried in craft. <laughs> you gotta, yeah. yeah, for sure. Um, okay. And uh, Angela, your last one is a Houston bookstore called Murder by the Book. And it sounds like the staff there send you books in the mail since you've moved away. Yes. Um, you know, I think in this, for, for me, and I wake up dreaming about, well, if I position this on the material this way and do the laser this way would I increase productivity and I could start thinking about that at one in the morning yeah totally and, I have the same problem <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah and uh, it's like popcorn going off in my head and so I and I learned that if I read intense books um that I'd be like kind of scared you know like, that can really happen and and that wasn't good and so the staff at this bookstore murder by the book in Houston I walked in one day and I'm like I need to read mysteries that won't keep me awake at night and I, that don't feel like they could really happen and so they have turned me on to so many different things and now about every two months I call and say my supply is de depleted this is what I love and like we'll try this new one and try this is a new series starting and they um they know me and know my taste and, and ship me books. And um, it's just, it's like Christmas every two months. That's fantastic. Totally good. Um, love local bookstores too. And um, okay, Liz, you have a last one, which is cold brew coffee, which I love, but with premier protein shakes, which I've never heard of. Well, it, we both had food things on, which is so, you know, when you're, you're, your, my creative brain is done and I need something. Cold brew allows me to drink coffee again because it just didn't agree with me. But Premier protein shakes are just these like protein shakes you get in the food aisle of any grocery store. They're, they're not really that fancy except they don't have a lot of sugar in them. So I add it to the cold brew coffee and it gives me a protein boost and a caffeine boost, but doesn't send me over the edge. Mm. So it's my now three o'clock like got to get another project done, go to pick me up. And of course, the best thing is to go take a walk. But sometimes that doesn't even work. Right. So and we don't have I live in a really small town. So, you know, although I do have a coffee shop that's down the street, this is something I can do at home. Right. Okay. All right. Good. Sounds good. Well, Angela and Liz, thank you so much for being on the Craft Industry Alliance podcast and sharing your stories. I really enjoyed talking to both of you. Yeah, thanks for having us. And you've been listening to the Craft Industry Alliance podcast. I'm Abby Glassenberg. Today's episode was brought to you by Gourmet Quilter because quilting is delicious. 
Gourmet Quilter has been bringing original design quilt patterns to the quilt world over the last 20 years, as well as many quilting tips and techniques and video tutorials via Gourmet Quilter on YouTube. Online projects are a specialty, such as Block of the Day, What's in the Box Mystery Quilts, Sew Alongs, as well as many other delicious items. So go to GourmetQuilter.com to learn more and use the code CIA20 to receive a 20% discount on the Gourmet Quilter book, That Town and Country Quilt, through February 29th, 2020. Thank you so much, Gourmet Quilter. Craft Industry Alliance is a community for craft professionals. And when you become a member, you get in-depth coverage of craft industry news, the opportunity to connect with fellow professionals like Liz and Angela for advice and support, and access to an educational library filled with ideas, tools, and resources to help you as you build your business. So join us at craftindustryalliance.org. Thank you so much, and I'll see you next time.